This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Reed Quentin, uh, Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, and a forensic pathologist in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology here at Mayo Clinic, and we're going to talk about forensic pathology. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Quentin. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And we are grateful to have you because one of your other accolades is that you just recently won uh, the award for Teacher of the Year for Anatomic Pathology. So we are an award-winning podcast now that we got you on here. This is important because this is an award given by the residents and fellows to who they think is the best teacher. Well, and we don't want to uh, skip on the fact that you also got the same award for clinical pathology. So congratulations. Thank you. So our medical education is strong in this podcast. (laughs) So why don't you kick us off? I'm really curious. Nowadays, there's a lot of TV shows about forensic pathology. And I'm curious, what's your origin story? How did you decide to become a forensic pathologist? I think a lot of people start off exactly like you said, they, you know, watch television and that can go all the way back to when I was a little kid and you had, you know, the old shows like Quincy and stuff like that. But honestly, for me, it was really my father. My father was a police officer in New Orleans where we grew up. And I just remember he would come home when I was a kid and talk about his day and sometimes talk about things that happened. And so I I always had that interest in law enforcement, but as a police officer, and I think anybody out there who has a uh, parent who was a police officer would understand this, he would basically tell me, you can do anything you want when you grow up, but don't you ever come home and tell me you want to be a police officer. So he didn't like that idea, but I always liked that idea of somehow integrating what I was doing in law into law enforcement. I thankfully was always pretty good in school too, and so decided that I would go the route of what was all over the news at the time, which was more of like the DNA side of things. So I actually went to college with the intent of working in a DNA lab because that was the new sort of hot thing in forensics. And interestingly, I walked out of high school saying I knew two things. I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't want to be a lawyer. (laughs) And I sort of ended up somewhere in the middle of all those things. But yeah, I majored in biochem, and as part of that, they automatically put me in the pre-med program, and then as I sort of got into my first and second year of college, I had a mentor in in biology who said, you know, have you ever thought about forensic pathology? And I said, no. And again, going back to New Orleans on breaks, since my father sort of had the in route, he said, well, if you're interested, do you want to see an autopsy? And that's that's kind of how it got started. So I, I ended up spending all of my break time during college in the morgue in New Orleans, observing autopsies. And that's kind of what got me originally hooked. Wow. So that really kind of gave you an exposure, put you in the forensic pathologist's shoes a little bit for seeing what is their day like. It, it's, that makes me kind of wonder about, you see what's kind of out there in popular media you fortunately were able to really see what does the practice look like. What do you think are a few of the biggest kind of misconceptions that get out there about forensic pathology? There are certainly a few. Um, One of the ones that I 
didn't really realize at first until I was practicing. And then I would get phone calls from young people who were interested in the field. One of the misconceptions right off the top is that I think a lot of people don't really understand that a forensic pathologist is actually a doctor. So they would say, hey, I'm very interested in doing what you do. And they would have some understanding of what forensic pathologists did. But then when I would go through the steps of, well, first you need a degree, then you need to go to medical school. And they'd cut me off and say, wait, I don't want to go to medical school. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people sometimes still don't understand that we're actually physicians. So that's kind of interesting. I think that sort of a similar misconception is that many lay people don't understand the terminology, like what is a forensic pathologist, what is a medical examiner, and what is a coroner, because they're all oftentimes very sort of commingled. And so I try to explain to them that depending on where you are, a coroner is an elected official. That is someone who receives the votes and becomes coroner. Now, in some places, that person is required to have a particular amount of training. But in other places, that is not the case. I remember when I was in medical school, there was a pathology second year resident who went ahead and ran for coroner in his county and got it. And he was by far the most experienced. <laughs> so, so you never know. But, but a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner is someone who actually trains in anatomic pathology and forensic pathology and is an actual MD. So that's that. The only other thing I, I would say is a big misconception is because of the news and because of television. I think a lot of people assume that we only deal with murders and all these gruesome types of cases. And they don't really realize that there are so many more than that. And in fact, probably the largest number of cases we do turn out to be natural disease and natural deaths. It's just that they fall into the category of the medical examiner system because they're sudden and unexpected or unexplained. Hmm. So does that mean that there's a big public health component to forensic pathology? Yeah, absolutely. So public health on multiple levels, but I think many of us have really got to witness that during uh, COVID. In fact, you know, as bad as COVID has been for the last year, there's this little tiny sense of validation for people like us, because when, you know, the vast majority of even our own campus here shut down back in April of last year, there were only a few essential places that had to continue working and autopsy was one of those, you know, that's a service that we cannot stop doing. Being right there on the forefront, for instance, right now, we do so much COVID screening because we have people that, again, die unexpectedly. They may be found at home or they may be I don't know, in a motor vehicle accident or what have you. But if they don't have a recent COVID test, we do all of those as just more of a public health service to, to sort of gauge where we are. And you'd be surprised how many times we pick up asymptomatic carriers that then can be reported to the health department and they can start working through uh, the, the contact tracing. So the COVID is a nice example on how you've kind of partnered with the Department of Health. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? And what does that look like? Because I, I mean, we've got a, a number of uh, clinicians that listen to this podcast that maybe are unfamiliar about how is the role with uh, forensic pathology played. And then also for students that are listening as well, if they're interested in public health, forensic pathology might be a, an interesting career path for them. 
Sure. It really comes down to, like I said, that contact tracing element of it. You know, oftentimes we end up being, if you will, the first responders because we are the first people that trigger the investigation and notification of the family to let them know that, hey, you know, you may not have even realized this, but your loved one at home with you was positive, which means potentially everybody else was exposed. And it's, it's really, I mean, just a profoundly important part of what we do right now. But, you know, even beyond COVID, back in 2014, when I was still in, in Dallas, we had the Ebola scare, where we actually had a positive patient for Ebola in one of the local hospitals, and subsequently two of his nurses caught Ebola. So, you know, we were working through the health department constantly to sort of figure out if this goes farther, what do we do as a city and how do we respond to this and what is the medical examiner's role in screening the unknown patients or, you know, do there was a lot of questions of like, well, what are you guys going to do with these Ebola patients when they come through? And we had to sort of remind public health that if they have a diagnosis and they have a physician, technically they're not even really a medical examiner case. So that changes sort of the scope of how we approach some of those things. But we really worked with them just to kind of discuss like, if this gets worse, what will we do to store bodies? What will we do to notify families? That kind of thing. I see. So you're not just going to the courtroom and, and doing autopsies. It sounds like there's a lot of meetings that happen as well to kind of plan for what's our community response to these epidemics that might come, come forward. Absolutely. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. Like you point out, you're a physician, and a lot of times we think about uh, you know, other physicians that we interact with, and that's certainly a focus of this podcast. I'm kind of curious, could you kind of talk a little bit about what about interacting with other physicians? What types of physicians are you interacting with periodically? And what are those kind of conversations about what kinds of cases and questions? At a very superficial level, probably the physicians we interact with the most are going to be other pathologists outside of forensics. So for instance, we work very closely with uh, neuropathology, cardiac pathology, those groups, because we may have cases that require a neuropathologist to do a more detailed workup for, for instance, a neurodegenerative disorder. We also work sort of on your side of the field sometimes too in the laboratory medicine, particularly I would say our number one is with toxicology. So chemistry and toxicology, because so many of our cases may involve drugs or illicit substances uh, that we're screening for. So that becomes a really big part of our interaction. We've already mentioned public health, uh, public health, uh, the health department, things like that, but also sort of in the hospital itself, oftentimes for some cases, uh, we interact with radiology in many of our uh, either sudden infant deaths or child abuse cases. We all interact very closely with the pediatricians and the radiologists. Sometimes we will attend morbidity and mortality conferences, and oftentimes these might be reviews of particular cases in which there was a death in the hospital. And so the clinician or maybe the surgeon is interested in what did we find and is there something that could have been done in the treatment to sort of change that outcome. 
And then the final one I'll mention, which is very near and dear to my heart, is sort of the multidisciplinary teams like the one I've been involved in so much over the years, which is Child Death Review, where throughout the country, there are multiple child death review teams that look at every child fatality in each state. And those teams are made up of forensic pathologists, lawyers, pediatricians, other healthcare workers, uh, nurses, representatives from local school boards, you know, all of that team looks at these cases to basically say, okay, if there was a child fatality, was it something that we could have done differently? Was there something we could have caught? What can we do to prevent these in the future? So part of that actually goes back to the preventative side of things that you mentioned earlier, sort of in in the realm of public health, which is that Many of the recommendations that we make in child death review teams end up getting passed through as legislation later. So if you look at things like car seats, you know, when we were kids, how many people actually used car seats? And now they're mandatory. Everybody uses them. And a big part of that was the push from these types of committees. You know, I'm curious, like as you're kind of talking, giving a couple of different examples there, something that kind of popped in my mind to highlight might be. It sounds like you approach an autopsy very differently depending on what the clinical question or or what the issue is. And I was wondering if you could kind of give our listeners kind of an example, you know, two contrasting examples on what might be the case or the pertinent question at hand and how you would approach doing that autopsy differently. Just like a surgeon might, based on the pre-planning anatomy that they know that a patient has, they might plan their surgery differently. As a forensic pathologist, the, the clinical question very much is going to drive how you approach the case. Yes, absolutely. So we basically start sort of with a very wide scope and then narrow as you go. Some cases obviously are are pretty straightforward uh, based on the scene investigation. So if it's a suicidal, say, hanging or gunshot wound or something like that, those are usually pretty straightforward other than the work up down the line of of more of the scene investigation and kind of getting all of that information correct. But some of my favorite cases are the ones that are you know, person found down at home. So you start with this very broad category of it could be anything. It could be a homicide. It could be a suicide. It could be an overdose. It could be natural disease. We don't know. And then as you get into the autopsy, we kind of start out all autopsies very similarly and then hone in as we go. There are some practices throughout the country as far as doing some people like to do partial autopsies or things like that. I don't. My thing is, if, if I'm going to do an autopsy, I want to do the whole autopsy because you never know what's going to surprise you once you get in there and start. But like, for instance, we've had child cases where it just starts out as, you know, two month old unresponsive in crib. Well, that could be anything. And it may turn out to be a meningitis, in, in which case you have to start down the path of doing an entire infectious disease workup. Then also notifying public health so that they can take care of the rest of the family who may have been exposed. That same case may turn out to be a co-sleeping overlay SIDS type case, in which case the majority of what we do is honestly scene investigation and then ruling out many things. So basically making sure there's no trauma or anything like that. That same case may end up having trauma, in which case it becomes sort of a homicide investigation. So in fact, I had a two-month-old 
found unresponsive in a crib that it was assumed was a SIDS type case, but it was in a very prominent, well-known daycare center. And during the investigation, we ended up finding out that there was quite a large amount of Benadryl in the child's system. And it turned out that the caregivers were giving Benadryl to all the children to help them sleep. So that obviously became quite a big issue as well. Wow. That's really interesting to highlight the purpose of the autopsy, right? And I think a lot of people talk about autopsy rates going down nationally, but it sounds like there's a lot of value that can can come out of this and really kind of shines a light on things that we may not be aware of happening in our in our community. Absolutely. And and it's important to recognize that there are two different types or styles of autopsy because there is the forensic autopsy, which I've been mentioning, but there's also the hospital autopsy. In general, across the country, hospital autopsy rates have been going lower and lower. Forensic autopsy rates have been going higher. We're very lucky here at Mayo that we really promote the hospital autopsy service because there are questions, even if the clinicians might not have questions about what happened in a case, the families might. And so we really push to to sort of offer that to the families. So our hospital autopsy rate here is still extremely high. That's wonderful. And and thank you for pointing that out, that these are two different types of cases that, that, you know, it's the medical cases or, or it's a forensic case. One of the things I wanted to, I was kind of curious about, I always like kind of understanding how are fields evolving and forensic pathology isn't a dead specialty, <laughs> couldn't resist in that, but in what ways is the field of forensic pathology continuing to evolve and, and grow? I think really uh, it's kind of like everywhere else in medicine right now, to some degree, it's more incorporation of digital technology. You know, we moved into complete digital photography years ago when that became a thing. Now we're moving into digital microscopy. It was actually really fun here at Mayo when, again, with COVID, you know, trying to find silver linings in the COVID pandemic, but we were already discussing as an institution how to implement digital pathology, meaning microscopy, so looking at slides. And very early in that discussion, on the autopsy service, we said, let us be the, the guinea pigs. We'll be happy to be the first ones to, to pioneer this technology. And so when everyone else was stuck at home and couldn't look at slides, we had all of our slides digitized. So I could sign out cases from anywhere. I could look at them at home. If a resident called me and had a question, I could pull them up anywhere. So that implementation has been very helpful for both the practice and for teaching. Over the years, forensic pathology has gotten much more involved in imaging technology, like for instance, x-ray, CT, MRI. It used to be that you were lucky if you just had an x-ray machine. Now we're pushing more and more of the um, forensic programs to have CT and MRI and things like that. Uh, One big thing lately has been sort of this high-speed full-body x-ray imaging. And there are several companies that, that provide this technology, which almost looks like a mini CT scanner, but it basically is an arm that does a full body x-ray within seconds, which has dramatically improved our ability to image those cases and maybe look for things like projectiles or what have you. So that technology has been fantastic. And then the final one I'll mention, which is not popular yet, but it could be in the future, but uh, we've used it here sometimes, which is 3D printing. So it's one thing to be able to 
walk into a courtroom and show a photograph and say, okay, here's the image of this gunshot wound on this person's skull. But it's another thing to just pull out a 3D printed skull and say, there's the gunshot wound. Anytime we can make it easier for the jury to understand what we are trying to convey, it's better for all of us. Wow, that's really interesting. So for our clinicians that are listening to this to kind of understand this field of forensic pathology and the interactions that you have with others, and then for students to understand really what does a forensic pathologist do to understand these differences between medical autopsy, forensic autopsy, and the fact that just like all the other fields in medicine, you're starting to integrate these newer technologies, digital slide imaging, some of the full body imaging aspects. I, I, I really appreciate your time joining us today, Dr. Quinton. So happy to do this. So we've been rounding with Dr. Quinton, and thank you for joining us today, listeners. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Thank you.